This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au So as we continue in our Summer of Revival series, I want to introduce to you what we'll be talking about today from the book of Ephesians. Um, and it, we're going to be talking about the gift of God. That's the, uh, the, the topic of our talk this morning, that we will be looking at the gift of God. So wherever you are, wherever you find yourself on your journey of faith, whether you've been following Jesus for many years, whether you are a new follower of Jesus, whether you do not follow Jesus here today, I pray that God will meet you where you are. And we're going to be looking at three things um, through the, uh, the text that was read. Uh, the human predicament, so what's our situation? Uh, the divine interruption and uh, issuing out in a new creation. So before we do that, let me pray, and then we'll get straight into it. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you that we have just enough health and energy to be here this morning. We want to continue to pray for rain. We want to continue to pray for your mercy to come down on this land, that we would be united, uh, that we would see your face. Even in the midst of this tragedy, Lord, may we not judge your character uh, by what is happening, but may we judge what is happening by your character. And so as we approach your word now, help us to do that humbly. Uh, help us to stay low. Help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for your people. And help me to remember the things that will uh, bring life to your people. And uh, I pray that your people will grow this morning. Um, that those who are far would come near. Uh, so we bind now in the name of Jesus the, uh, the works of the enemy and his effects. And we pray that Jesus, the glory of the gospel will shine this morning. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And so 2020, we're still here, right? And um, it seems to me this year, there's been a bit of a decrease in the whole new year, new me thing, right? And maybe uh, it's just... Uh, I have a whole bunch of old grumpy people on my news feed on Facebook, and we, Facebook tends to be a bit of an echo chamber. And so maybe that's just me and my friends, where we've been a bit sobered up by the past five years. Um, and, and maybe that's not true for you. Maybe you're still really feeling like, new year, new me, right? But that's just not what I see very much this year. But every single habit that you want to take on, every resolution that you've made or want to make, the resolutions that you may have already broken, are anchored in a story. And that story shapes us, it leads us into what we believe will be the good life. And so every single uh, resolution or new habit that we want to form is placed within, it's nestled within a story. And that story is telling us what the good life is. It's teaching us what it may look like, whatever it looks like. But the problem is this, the problem is that we have been indoctrinated in our culture to believe in a myth. And the myth is that we are radically individuals. We believe in, in this thing called radical individualism, expressive individualism, where we actually believe that we decide the stories that we want to live out of. But stories shape our lives, and they are more caught than they are taught. And they're caught through slogans and movies and songs, and uh, mainly not through the intellect, but through the affect through the imagination. And in, in essence, we are incepted or inceptioned. I'm not sure how to say that. 
But our culture teaches us what, we, what to like, our preferences, and what we feel. No, that's just all coming from within. But we are all being shaped. Our, our whole selves are being shaped by the stories of our culture. And they implant themselves in us, and they give birth, and they blossom in our preferences and choices and the way that we live our lives, all the while making us believe, allowing us to believe that it is our own sovereign selves that have chosen. And so I want to wake you up this morning to say, choose a different story. Don't let the story be chosen for you, as it were, but choose a different story. Because the preacher in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, was right when he said, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it will flow the springs of life. The heart, the operating center. It's not just the, the, the seat of emotions, but it's the operating center of our whole lives. Keep vigilance. Don't let yourself just simply go with the flow and be shaped by forces that you are unaware of. Be vigilant. And this is why it's so possible to profess faith with our lips, but have our imaginations soaked in the stories of our culture. It is so possible to say Jesus is Lord, to pray the Lord's prayer, may your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven, while having our choices and our values shaped far more by the culture. Because it's our heart that is incepted, as it were. It's our imagination that is soaked. It's bathed in the stories of the good life that our culture offers us. But not all stories are created equal. And Ephesians gives us a new story to believe in, a new story of reality. But before I begin with the human predicament, there's something that's incredibly important for us to remember, that we do not start with the human predicament. The Bible does not start in Genesis 3 with the fall. That's very important. Nor does it end with the human predicament as it were. The, the scriptures begin, this whole story that we're going to be going through begins with a good creator in a good and beautiful creation. That the world, even as it is fallen, and even as we uh, um, uh, feel the effects of that, we need to know that at the very center is a beautiful and good creator in a beautiful and good creation. We need to understand that as the context by which we engage with the rest of the story. So I'm going to begin Ephesians 2, verse 1. Come with me. So this is what Paul says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Let me just stop there real quick. That's shocking to us, particularly in our culture, to say you are dead in your trespasses and sin. And this you is not just a singular you, it's a plural you. Yous are dead in your trespasses and sins. And he's not just saying, hey, you Ephesians. Yes, it's, it's written to churches in the area of Ephesus, modern day Turkey, 2000 years ago. But this is the human predicament that we are all, every single person in this room, every single person in this neighborhood, every single person in this nation, every single person in the world living past, present, future. This is the human predicament. And what does Paul mean by saying that we are dead in our trespasses and sin? 
Simply, this is what he's saying, that yes, we are not physically dead, but that we are spiritually dead. That we are deaf to the voice of love found in Jesus. That we are blind to the glory of God, senseless to his beauty. That there's nothing in us that wants God. It's like speaking to stone. And in fact, the Old Testament speaks about this where uh, uh, there's a, a prophecy that talks about our hearts being stone, that we're not receptive to him. And each and every single one of us, whether we are believers and walking with Jesus or not, you know, if we're not shaping our lives according to the truth of who Jesus is, the scriptures are very clear. We're dead in heart, in affect that we don't want him. There's an image of sin and, and trespasses here. And one of the ways that I have often thought about it is, is this, is that sin so often for us is just doing something wrong. And, and while that's part of it, sin is, is, is like going against the grain of the universe. It is living our lives totally contrary to the way that we have been designed to live going against the grain of the universe. Now, I am not a builder. I own a toolbox, but I don't, I don't I like it's for show. And, um, but I did work at a warehouse where one of the primary jobs was to unload pallets. Now, a pallet is sort of a wooden frame where you can put stuff on. And at the end of a pallet, we would have to sort of remove it. And I worked with this guy, and I'm not going to say his name because uh, it's embarrassing, but Michael, what he would do, right, he would just so gently pick up this pallet. It would take so long. I'm like, Mike, we got to get to the next pallet. Let's go. But he'd pick it up. He'd sort of, he'd look at it. He'd, he'd, he'd sort of see what the grain of the wood was. So when he picked it up, he didn't get splinters. Now, when I would pick it up, I'm like, let's get this thing out of here. My hands were bleeding, but I'm, I'm unpacking books, right? And that's a picture of what it looks like to sin, to go against the grain of the wood. And what happens is that we get splinters. And what the effects that we see in our culture and even in our own lives, the strife, the dysfunction, that we see and experience in our own lives and in our own relationships are splinters. We go against the grain of the universe. And Paul is saying this is not just a one-time act, but this is a way of life. This is how we walk. And a way of life is simply this. It's a vision for what it means to live the good life. And so we are sold this bill of goods to say this is what it means to live the good life, and we end up with splinters. And the practices and the beliefs that we practice end up inhabiting us. And we become what Paul goes on to say. And the next verse may be hard for us to receive. It may be hard for us to hear this. That in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And this is what he's saying, plain and simple, that if we are not following and walking in step with the Spirit, that what we are doing in essence is colluding with the prince of darkness, that we are colluding with the powerful and evil forces in this world. Now, some of us may think, wait, hold on. I haven't signed up to anything. 
And I'm not even really sure if this evil person, this evil uh, sentient being exists. But let me give you a quick newsflash. And this is free. I'm not charging you for this. The devil's existence does not depend on whether you believe it or not. You, you get that, right? You get that evil spirits exist and they do not depend on whether you believe them or not. This is not the elf. Now the elf, the greatest Christmas movie ever filmed, right? Will Ferrell. It's a story of a guy who's an orphan. He gets shipped over to the North Pole. He becomes an elf as it were, goes back to New York City to find his dad. And the whole plot of the story is just to get people to believe that Santa Claus exists. And what we find throughout the story is that Santa's sled really just doesn't have the horsepower anymore because belief in him has decreased. And the idea is that if we get kids and other people to believe in, in, in Santa, I was going to say believe in Jesus, believe in Santa, then his sleigh will have the horsepower to go around the world, right? And drop presents on good little boys and girls in good neighborhoods. Always skips the ghetto. <laughs> That's a story that if people just believed in Santa, then he'd have power. And we think the devil somehow works this way. That if I don't believe in him, then, then it doesn't exist. And surely, without my express written consent, do I not collude with him? But Paul is very clear here. Paul is very, very clear that we are in tow with the enemy of God when we're not walking with Jesus. The devil does not depend on your approval or your cognizance of his existence. So much like Quasar J043947.08 plus 163415.7 depends on your believing it exists. Now that's a quasar that exists 12.8 billion light years away from the earth. And it has the power, the shining brightness of 600 trillion suns. Now, no, don't lie. No one in this room knew about that. but it doesn't depend on you knowing about it. You get that? It's still br brightly shining 12.8 billion light years away. And it doesn't depend on whether you knew it or not. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, that's humanity, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, that is the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist, which is generally our worldview, or a magician with the same delight. Paul is very clear that not only are we cut off from the source of life, but we are in collusion with the enemy as we live a way of life that is contrary to God's purposes for this world and for your life. And this issues out then in Paul saying that we are children of wrath, that we are the offspring of wrath. I thought, I, that doesn't make any sense. I, we, we makes more sense to be the, maybe the recipients of wrath. No, no, no. He's saying that we are the offspring of wrath. And so often we think that wrath is just this passive anger, but wrath is also... God's letting us go to our own devices. That's what he says in Romans 1 when he says that he gave people up. He gave them up. That, that is one of the scariest 
verses, this, that he gave them up, and that is his wrath towards humanity. That is a way that God shows his wrath towards the world, by giving it up and allowing it to eat the fruit of its dysfunction, allowing it to eat the fruit of its hating of God. And he gives them up. And we then become children of that giving up. We become children of the dysfunction and the sin and the brokenness. And this is our lot. Happy New Year. We're dead. We're hopeless. We're in collusion with the enemy. That's news. We reap what we sow. We become children of God's wrath, allowing us to go our way. And ultimately, this gives birth to death. This is bad news. This is bad news. And if the canon of Scripture were to be cut off there, we'd be in trouble. But there's a divine interruption when Paul writes, But God. Those are the two most explosive words in the Bible. But God. Did you hear anything I just said? We're dead. We are hopeless. We are empty. There's nothing in us that can save us. There is nothing that a dead person can do to raise him or herself back. To, have you seen a dead person? There's nothing in them. There's no life. There's no responsiveness. There is zero hope but God. The divine interrupter. He comes in being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. When all is down and when all is low, when all seems lost, when you are scraping the bottom of a barrel called hope, when there is nothing left, when disorder takes over and our broken lives are exhausted, when there's nothing but emptiness and devastation, when you have a sea in front of you and an army behind you and you are stuck and there's nothing, when all you're facing is giants, when disappointment and depression have left you with not even tears to cry, when you are at your very wit's end, but God, if you remember anything from today, but God, but God, the divine interrupter comes in, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Notice something very important. This is what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, but God, in order to love us, sent his son to die for us. You get, you, did you see that? So he can love us. This is what he did. No. No. Because of his great love for us. Because he is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, nothing, death, decay, cold. And in that state, he sees you and he loves you. And there are people in this room in that state. And he sees you and he loves you. And he's calling you to wake up to this love to replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, Ezekiel tells us in the Old Testament. He sees you and he loves you. Notice that he doesn't do this in order to love you, 
but he does it because of the great love with which he already loves you. That's incredibly important to understand. He makes us alive together with Christ. He raises us up with him and he seats us with him in the heavenly places. We're going to talk about what that means, but real quick, that right now, even as we sit here, if you love and follow Jesus, if you are an apprentice of Jesus and he has saved you, you are seated in the heavenlies. That's your position. He sees you, he knows you, he loves you, he has raised you up with him, and he has seated you with him in the heavenlies, ruling and reigning with him. And this issues out in a new creation. He goes on in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Gift. Gift. It is the gift of God. Gift. Gift. You don't earn a gift. You can't even reciprocate this gift because it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're not saved by our works, but we're saved for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You get this image now that now we are walking a different step. Now, because of Jesus, we are walking according to the grain of the universe. And now, you don't even see your life as your own because Jesus is not a holy appendage to your life or an appendix to your life or a footnote. Even, he's not even the heading of your life. He's not even taking the wheel of your life. You no longer have your own life. You don't even think about it that way. This is what Paul says in Galatians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's not saying, let me just say this very quickly. He's not saying that there's a loss of personality or selfhood. That's not what he's saying. But so much so has Jesus taken over your life that you don't even see it as your own. He goes on in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That your life is hidden with Christ in God. For Christ, who makes your life better, appears. Christ, who promises you forgiveness and justification. Christ, who comes along and just sort of updates your life. That's not what the text says. The text says, when Christ, who is your life appears. Then you will also appear with him in glory. And what was once central to us, those navigating stories of our culture that says what's really important, if you really want to be happy, then you just need to climb that social or corporate ladder. Many of us in this room, 
operate with saying Jesus is Lord, but treating our boss as Lord. Many of us in this room operate in such a way where we say, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And yet we actually live trying to build our own kingdoms and our own name. Because it's very easy to profess something, but our hearts are soaked. Our imaginations are drenched with the stories of our culture. But your life is no longer your own. And this is all by sheer powerful Efficacious grace, grace that you have been made alive with Christ, even as you were dead in your trespasses, since he doesn't wait for you to wake up, that you were dead and he raised you up and he seated you. And do you, do you get what this means? I'm going to give you 10 out of a billion reasons about what this means. Number one, there is no longer enmity between us and God, that we have peace with him. You're like, I didn't know I was at war. But there is no longer enmity between us and God. The deepest fracture of this universe is healed because of what Jesus has done. Our greatest enemy, number two, our greatest enemy, the accuser has been defeated on the cross. Like, I didn't even know I had an enemy. But Peter tells us that the, the, the devil is prowling around like a lion, seeking someone who he can devour. He is the antithesis of all that is good in the world. And he wants to take you with him. We do not battle against flesh and blood. Paul says, but against the powers and the principalities of the air. Meaning this, that your mother-in-law is not your real enemy. Your boss is not your real enemy. Those weird relatives that you had to endure last month are not your real enemy, although it can feel that way. The culture is not your enemy. The accuser, the one who has been lying from the beginning of time, is your enemy. And he has been defeated on the cross. Number three, we are reinstated as kings and queens and co-rulers of the world. Did you ever wonder why is it, particularly in pop culture, where everyone wants to be a king or a queen, queen bay, whatever, there's something in us that yearns for royalty. There's something in you called eternity that God has put in you as made in the image of God that you are created to rule. There's something in you. That, 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 and that part, so often when we see that in culture as Christians, we sort of just, ah, oh, that's just, they're just raising themselves up to be in the stature of God. Sure, it's a broken version, sure. But God has created, he created Adam and Eve to rule and reign in his place. The purposes of God in the very first chapters of the book of Genesis is to create a world whereby he can put humanity in there to rule and reign and dwell with him on his behalf. And so there's something deep in us that is reinstated when we follow Jesus, that we become co-rulers again of this world with the grain of the universe. And another thing, number four, is that we inherit the universe. All right, maybe that's not enough for you, but 
Like we inherit, the, that's a promise that we inherit the universe. And so often we live just to put our name on a deed for a little plot of land. What a loss. I'm not saying that's wrong to do that. I'm not saying it's, home ownership is wrong. Absolutely, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when we organize our life, and that is the heaviest thing in our life, and that is the organizing principle of our life, and that is the goal of our life, then yes, you are selling yourself so incredibly short when Jesus promises us that we will inherit the world. We inherit the universe. Number five, we have peace now with God, as I said, but also with ourselves, with each other, and with creation. Number six, death is no longer to be feared. Death has been defeated. That's good news. Death is no longer to be feared. For to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Number seven, the promises of Abraham given to him found in Jesus are ours now. That we would be agents of peace and reconciliation in this world. That we would be the conduit by which the glory of God is mediated to the world. That is a high calling. Number eight, we can live knowing we have been awakened to live with the grain of the universe. Number nine, we no longer seek approval from others because of what Jesus has done. Because we have the approval of the Father. You know, I always wondered, why is it that Jesus in the Gospels has to be baptized by his cousin John? He had a weird cousin, John the Baptist. He wore sort of uh, uh, camel's hair. He ate locusts and honey, dates, and the, he, you know, he lived, he lived as, a, as, a, as, a, uh, uh, as a nomad, as it were, in the desert. And he goes out to the desert, and what John is doing is that he's baptizing people for the remission of sins. Now, that's a problem for me if Jesus needs to be baptized for the remission of sins. I wonder what, what is happening there. Last year, I went to uh, Israel and Jordan where I was able to visit the Jordan River about the place where Jesus was baptized. And as I, I sat there, I meditated. I said, Lord, what, what, what is actually, what happened there? And the reason why Jesus had to fulfill all righteousness, he says, and be baptized in the Jordan River, in the dirty, muddy waters of the river, is so that he can identify with us. So that when he comes out and he hears this booming voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, we can identify with that. We, he identifies with us in his baptism so that we can identify with him in the approval of the Father. And every single person in this room is hurting for approval. We want to get that from our spouses or we need to get that from our bosses. We need to get that from our accomplishments. We need to get that by what kind of house we live in or, or who, who's on our arm or, or what kind of car we drive. You know, we, we, we need to get that. So we need to be approved of. We need to know each and every single person in this room needs to know they're okay. And we, we seek to find that justification in all these ways that end up hurting us. But there's one who approves of you who looks at you now with tenderness in his eyes and says, ah, you are my beloved 
child in whom I am well pleased. You have the approval of the Father. And finally, we get God. The gospel says this, that at the end, what the deepest truth, the deepest, the, 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 the heaviest weight of the gospel is this, that we get God. Every single desire that we have coursing through our veins that we find in relationships that we should not be in, that we find in, in the, 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 the violent hours that maybe we should not be working because we, we need to get something. All these desires that somehow we think we just need to get rid of. I want to say, no, 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 no. We just, we need to re-engineer them. We need to say those desires are met in him. The desire of approval, the desire for a relationship, the desire for intimacy, the desire to be seen and known and loved is met in him. All these desires that maybe so often as Christians, we feel we just, we need to repent of as it were. And maybe we need to repent of as, in terms of the way we have gotten there, the way we, we seek to meet those desires. But you need to hear this, that you get God. And Psalm 1611 says that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That we can be holy and happy in God. For no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. And the entire story from, from the good creation that we have to the human predicament to the divine interruption to a new creation ends here, like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, the people of God, the new Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and this is a voice you're gonna hear one day. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, with humanity. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That he would be so gracious that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins will give us that. Crazy. And so I want to invite you this morning, I want to invite you to turn. If you're not walking with Jesus, I want to issue an invitation to you now to turn, to follow him, to become his apprentice, to learn under him. He says that when we follow him and, and, and when we learn under him, he, he doesn't put a, a yoke that is too heavy for us to bear, but we follow him in the rhythms of grace, that we get to do this is an invitation. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, therefore we as we are ambassadors for Christ and God is making his appeal through us. And so I want to say this in the first word that God is making an appeal through me right now to you to follow him, to drop those anemic stories 
that keep on promising a bill of goods that it will be the good life. Drop that and follow him. In the Old Testament, there's this picture of sin in the book of Jeremiah, and it's this. And God tells Jeremiah, that this is what it looks like from his vantage point. Just imagine you were in the desert and you are parched, you're thirsty, and there's a well of beautiful, clean water just bringing out from the earth. And you see it. You see it. And then what you end up doing is trying to get water from this broken cistern, this well, where, where water is stagnant, parasitic, and we drink that. We can see the water. We can see the fresh springs. And yet, we choose to suck on dirt. And today, I want to invite you to go to the spring of living water so that living springs can even flow from your life to others. And so I don't know where you're at with Jesus here today, but I want to invite you into that life. And, and this is not something that just happens in our hearts. This is something that our whole selves do. And so I, I want to invite you. If this is you, if you feel that you are just so tired of the empty promises of this world, if you feel that maybe you have been drifting away from Jesus, if you feel that the operating center of your life has been more gained from the culture than from the scriptures, I invite you to raise your hand. In a, in, in a culture where even now, when I say that, you're thinking about the approval of others. What will this look like? What will this feel like? Let me tell you what it will look like. It will look like the angels singing. That's the vision. And so I invite you, even now, to raise your hand. I'd love to pray with you afterwards as well. I'd love to celebrate with you the new life. The scriptures say that when we turn to Jesus, we are transmitted from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And it's worth popping a few kegs over. I'm going to pray. I'm going to hang around here at the front, at the front if you'd love to, to chat afterwards. But I'm going to pray and we're going to sing together. We're going to rise. We're going to sing. We're going to sing about the glories of God. We're going to sing about the beauty of Jesus. And there's a way to respond as well. If you follow and love Jesus, or maybe this is going to be your declaration that you will now follow and love Jesus, is we take communion together. And that is a visceral way of reminding us of why this is all possible. And so they're stationed at the side and at the front. And when we take the bread and we dip it in the juice, what we are saying, in essence, with our whole bodies, is that we remember the broken body of the Messiah King, Jesus. And we dip it in to the juice as a remembrance for what he has done, for the blood that flowed from his body, for the forgiveness of our sins. For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the rightness of God. And so I invite you into this beautiful life now. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you that this is all gift, that we don't earn this, we can't work this off, Many of us, even in this room, feel 
this is somehow a transaction like a credit card and all we do is just put minimum payments just to keep you happy enough. But Lord, may you just rip away that, that thought, that idea, and send it straight back to the pit of hell because you in your lavish love and grace poured yourself out for us that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, you cared for us. You loved us. You died for us. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would blow through this room and turn hearts and turn lives, that they would come to you and pledge allegiance to the King who rules all and knows all and looks at us even now with tenderness in his eyes. We thank you, King Jesus, now in your precious and beautiful name. Amen and amen.